0: Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craft for life. Welcome to episode 16 of this podcast, whether you are a returning or a new listener. First, I'd like to thank you for all the lovely comments I received about my return to podcasting after quite a hiatus. I hadn't realised how long it had actually been between podcasts until I uploaded episode 15. I was shocked at the lull and resolved to be more diligent with regular updates. That said, all that time away was very fruitful though, as it helped me distill where I want to take the podcast and importantly, how it might fit in with my wider creative life and practices. This has prompted me to take a couple of decisions, which I will come to later. Before I start, let me introduce myself to any new listeners. I'm Meg and based in London in the UK. In this podcast I use my recent making projects and I mean making in the widest possible meaning as a jumping off point to explore the tension between my love of making and materials on the one hand and my concerns about environmental and ethical issues on the other. As the name suggests curiosity is at the heart of these musings. I work through questions like how and why I make just as much as what I make and I hope that my experiences, questions, observations are both entertaining and maybe encourage your own exploration and inquiry as a maker. If you want to follow my antics between episodes, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with underscore between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg aka Mrs M, and that's with a hyphen between each word. I will link all this information and anything I mention on the podcast in the show notes, which are available on my blog, Mrs M's com. As I have been reflecting on how I use my creative energy, I have cut the time I spend on social media and have actually decided to stop updating the Ravelry group. In practice, most of the interactions and discussions that flow from the podcast have happened on Instagram or my blog anyway, so I don't think this will cause a major upheaval, but it will save me some time. So what do I have in store today? In this episode I'll be looking at some of my recent knitting and sewing projects as they've prompted me to explore the relationship between natural human desire for novelty and my inquisitive nature as well as my thirst for creative inspiration and how they sort of interact with those concerns about resource usage. I shall also touch upon one area of my making practice that naturally allows for regular novelty Finally, I will share a slightly unusual for me inspiring gem and detail one of the decisions I've recently made in connection with my podcast. Before I launch into my knitting projects though, I should add that I may be recording this podcast in bite-sized pieces. I normally aim to record an episode in one sitting, or at least each segment in a single sitting to ensure consistency and sound, both of my voice and background noise. But builders are currently carrying out some renovation works for us, which means regular bursts of banging and drilling. I will therefore be recording this episode during the pockets of quieter activity, so if there are differences in background noise or my voice, I do hope it's not too distracting. If someone were to ask me what kind of knitter I am, I'd probably describe myself as a cardigan knitter. I love knitting shawls and I'm an occasional sweater and sock knitter. But in the main I knit cardigans because they form the backbone of my wardrobe. As someone who is always chilly I regularly reach for a cardi, layering several in the winter and often wearing one in the summer too. As such my cardigans are subject to serious wear and tear so it makes sense that I knit mostly cardigans. Earlier this summer I knit Gudrun Johnston's Audrey and Unst cardigan this is a smartish mid-layer cardigan, which I knit in sportweight wool by Allcentrum, a Swedish company that spins yarn from fleece that would usually go to waste. Now that we're well into autumn, I'm working on a slightly heavier cardigan, the Salal cardigan by Andy Satterland. I'm knitting this in some hearty teddy bear-like Manxlochten from the Balakosnahan farm on the Isle of Man. As I was updating my project page on Revelry, I realised that most of the cardigan patterns I knit are very similar to each other. They are either cropped cardigans that I lengthen through the body with set-in sleeves that I knit using short rows for the sleeve cap downwards rather than knit from the bottom upwards, or they're yoke style cardigans. On spotting this similarity, I ran through the garments in my Ravelry queue and favourites, and these two shapes definitely predominate, even among the few sweater designs I've saved for future makes. More than just having similar shapes, I also noticed that many of the cardigans I knit or plant knit are designed by the same handful of designers, and some are very much a variation on a theme. I don't say that to disparage the designer's work. It is not unusual, after all, for creatives to explore a certain theme, shape, technique or motif in various forms for a certain period. Also, I don't think I'm particularly unusual in knitting a limited range of shapes designed by a handful of designers. Although we may consciously try to expand the range of designers whose work we follow, we knit as can, just like designers, be drawn to exploring certain lines or features for a while, resulting in us knitting multiple garments or accessories that are in a very similar vein. This realisation did however prompt me to mull over my preference for a limited palette of shapes and techniques, and how this sits in the context of the prevailing economic reality – that is to say, the drive to get us hooked on novelty and ever-changing trends. Although the hand knitting sector moves a little slower than the mainstream fashion world, it's by no means immune to the drive for new styles or techniques, colourways or yarn combinations. Understandably so. Independent designers, wool producers, dyers and little yarn shops need to make a living just as much as anonymous corporations. And that means encouraging customers to return regularly. And I certainly don't begrudge this. In fact, I am very aware that my own limited palette has a negative impact on the livelihood of designers. Looking at my limited palette of pattern choices, I've been wondering whether our extended investment in and relationship with our hand knits, From the initial decision making about pattern and materials to the experiences and emotions we embed in our knitting can actually help us strike a more considered balance between the pursuit of novelty for its own sake and our creative drive, curiosity and appetite for inspiration. When I look at my own knitting over the last 10 years or so, there are definitely several phases Like many who learnt to knit as a child, I picked up my needles again after a prolonged break from the craft and realised how much the knitting sphere had changed since my childhood and teenage years. For one, when I returned to knitting, there was a lot more wool available in haberdasheries and wool shops and in much greater variety. Also, the range of patterns was very different to what I remember, and that was before I discovered Ravelry. Before coming across Ravelry, my repertoire was not very extensive, for no other reason than me being a very lazy shopper. Pretty early on in my return to knitting, I found a couple of designers whose style I liked. I also stumbled across two ranges of woolly wools that reminded me of the non synthetic wools of my childhood, in particular Navia and Susan Crawford's Exolana. So, for quite a few years, my palette of wool and shapes was pretty limited on the basis of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. When my search for more local walls led me to Louise Scully's podcast, Ravelry and Indie Designers, my repertoire expanded as I came across new yarn producers, dyers, patterns by many designers in very different styles and attractive sock patterns. But after a couple of years of dabbling with creativity and the choices available, I very quickly developed preferences and my knits concentrated around a core set of skills, materials and shapes minimally processed wool, preferably wool and spun, garments knit in the round top down with set in sleeves, hap-like shawls, designs that showcase the natural characteristics of the wools I like, i.e. mostly stocking stitch with varying degrees of lace. And with it I developed a style that I like and I'm comfortable in. That's not to say that I don't still experiment and explore, it's just that the experiments are less radical rather a case of playing with variations on a shape or adding a technique that will complement my core style, like introducing a hint of cables or colour work in recent years, or trying short-sleeved sweaters that can serve as a mid-layer over a long sleeve top and under a cardigan. Also, having found a style that works for me, I am much more pragmatic about ripping out experiments if I realise they aren't working for me and just notching them up to experience. Just like other people, I too get seduced into making a project based on the photos. In the past two years, I've cast on two projects, despite nagging doubts, because I loved how they looked in photos. Not just in the pattern photos, but also the photos of other knitters' interpretations. One was the Borough Firth sweater, a simple, elegant yoke by Gudrun Johnston, And the second was the Ranunculus sweater by Midori Hirozi, a lightweight layering sweater that hides the yoke increases in an intricate lace pattern. I must have knit the Borofa sweater about one and three quarters times between all the modifications I made from the depth of the yoke to the style of hem before casting off blocking it and deciding ultimately that it did me absolutely no favours. I absolutely loved the design on paper and the Jameson and Smith natural shade I was using, but my nagging doubts about the width of the net line and the placing of the stripes that emphasised my wider points were totally justified. So I just decided to repurpose the wool. With the Ranunculus sweater, I got about halfway through the top before I concluded that this pattern wasn't for me. Once again, it was a lovely project to knit and involved some interesting stitches, but the yarn and pattern pairing definitely wasn't right. Also, the range of lace motifs going on in the yoke area were just too busy for my liking and, quite frankly, made me feel frumpy. Whilst frogging this project, I realised that this pattern confirmed not just that I favour garments with only a hint of embellishment, but also what that level of embellishment is for me. And that in itself is a positive outcome. Having found a knitting palette that broadly works for me also means that although I may not be exploring a lot of big new things, I'm experimenting in a different way. I'm enjoying discovering how minor tweaks to broadly the same constituent parts can produce quite subtle but striking differences. For me, knitting the same pattern in a different type of yarn or yarn weight can be as inspiring as knitting a whole new pattern or re-knitting the same pattern with a few tweaks to improve the fit or change the overall feel subtly can tick the desire for newness just as much as an entirely new design for me. I completely recognise that for some knitters this narrow scope of experimentation and creative exploration is limiting or dull and ultimately none of us need to justify what, how or why we create to anybody but ourselves. However, I certainly recognise this pattern of extensive exploration, followed first by honing in on certain elements and developing a coarse style, and then by more focused experimentation, to be a very common creative pattern in my life. From years of creative non-fiction writing to my more recent ceramic and natural dyeing practices, I see this pattern repeat itself. First, there are periods of extensive experimentation, both in terms of researching a wide range of other creatives' works and hands-on practice to build skills and develop an understanding of the chosen craft, its tools and materials, and a sense of composition. I'm aware that in my various disciplines, this plethora of possibilities then gets distilled into key aspects that resonate and that over time, with practice, develop into a personal voice. Usually in my case, it's actually through focusing in on a limited number of parameters that I discover the core of my style or my voice. And I find it particularly enjoyable to explore how far I can develop and stretch my skills, style or voice within those constraints before adding in a new technique, material or line into the mix. Then, once I've truly explored the limited palette, I might shift my perspective slightly and use my established toolbox and style to explore the new field of vision, modifying and developing the toolbox and style as necessary in response to that new perspective. For example, in my writing, I actively chose to focus in on the essay, whether in print or spoken form. With the natural dyeing, I was repeatedly drawn to the endless possibilities of three core ingredients, madder, kutch and onion skins. In the ceramic studio, after an initial period of learning and experimenting, I settled on a particular brown stoneware, three glazes and two basic shapes. And in my knitting, I knit with limited palette of wool, shades and styles. And in each case, narrowing down the parameters has not stifled me creatively or bored me through lack of novelty. Instead, it's stretched me creatively, it has encouraged focused experimentation and it's allowed me to discover the satisfaction of finding newness not just in the object itself but at the point where my mindset, consciousness, mood, skills, experience and limitations interact with the materials, the tools, the object and the wider context. So why these musings are novelty, inspiration and experimentation? The pursuit of novelty is a theme that crops up constantly in research and discussions about sustainable consumption and environmental damage. There is no doubt that the ever shortening cycle of trends and their inbuilt obsolescence, whether in the textile sphere or other sectors, have led to resource depletion and environmental degradation, and in the process have done little to improve our mental well-being in the long term. And the environmental impact of an economic model that thrives on novelty has reached such levels that it has finally entered the mainstream, and individuals, institutions and economic sectors are starting to explore different models of producing and consuming. Some alternatives, like the extreme minimalism advocated by some, allow little recognition of human curiosity and a hunger for new inspirations. Yes, an economic model based on relentless novelty seeking has set us on a destructive path. But it's humankind's curiosity, interest in new things and innovative mind that has also allowed our species to survive and thrive over millennia. So it's something that we need to work with rather than just wish away. Even if we makers don't necessarily think of ourselves as creatives, the fact that we make means we have a longing to create or transform something, develop new skills, explore new experiences and therefore means we are in practice, tapping into that instinct for and curiosity about newness and innovation. And once we realise this, we can actively interrogate those drivers and choose how we want to harness our curiosity about newness in a constructive way, one that informs and directs our making rather than us just being led by novelty for the sake of it. This summer I've also been chugging away with several sewing projects. My main sewing objectives this year are replenishing tops as most of my t-shirts are decidedly ratty and threadbare and secondly, making simple garments that allow me a good range of movement, so I can work in the ceramic studio and in the garden in a comfortable way. I had thought that trousers would be the answer to the second question, but after persisting with a pattern I tried last year, I've concluded that I just don't enjoy wearing trousers, so I've decided that tunics and simple smocks may make more sense. As it takes a few twirls for me to really perfect the fitting of a bodice, I'm taking a no-nonsense approach to both these objectives. I'm working with three patterns that can do double if not triple duty to meet various wardrobe needs. Only one of the patterns is new, the other two are tried and tested to minimise the amount of groundwork I need to do. The patterns in question are Merchant & Mills Francine top, which includes a dress tunic variation, the decades of style given a chance dress, and the assembly line v-neck dress. At first glance there isn't a vast amount of novelty and variety to my sewing, but there is actually a fair amount of newness and inspiration that is keeping me engaged and developing. I therefore thought I would talk you through how I choose sewing patterns, what simplish tweaks I am making and planning, and some of the advantages of working from a limited repertoire of patterns. As I've decided that dresses, skirts and tops are the core of my wardrobe, I search for patterns that either include a dress or top variant, or can easily be adapted to cover both. And as my style generally veers towards smart casual, even in the more physical activities, I look for patterns that are relatively structured but still comfortable enough so I can crouch in the garden or straddle a pottery wheel. Also, given how long it takes me to get a bodice to fit properly around the bust, side, and bicep, I want patterns that will have longevity in terms of years. Typically, that means looking for a more classic shape rather than a trendy line, but there is another factor I am considering. As I'm at that perimenopausal age, I'm very aware that my body is likely to change over the coming years. It's not a given, of course, but there's a chance that my waist may become a little less defined. And sleeves may also be a no-no going forward. So when I think about longevity of a pattern in my repertoire, I am favouring ones that I know I will be able to adapt with minimal changes in the future. So preferably a gentle curve at the waist rather than a heavily defined transition from bodice to skirt. Something like the Francine top and dress, which is based on a fisherman's top, is perfect in that respect. Or the assembly line's v-neck dress. This is an A-line dress that will work well for my probable future shape, but I've been able to give the design a slight curve at the waist to hint at my still existing hourglass shape. The V-neck dress is drafted as a relatively long midi-length dress, but due to its simple shape, it is easily shortened into a tunic or even a top. In fact, I shortened my first twirl to a tunic length to save on fabric, but also with a view to using it as a pottery and gardening smock if it worked out well enough. The same goes for the given a chance dress. Apart from its interesting yoke, it is basically a slightly A-line shift dress. As well as giving the pattern a hint of a waist, I've also turned it into a top. When doing so, I decided to simplify the yoke. One of the main features of this dress is a yoke with a diagonal fold from the inside shoulder strap to the yoke seam at the bust. This produces an interesting effect, but I decided to omit it in my top version for two reasons. The yoke panels are cut on the bias and as I made the top out of a finely striped linen I didn't want a confusion of directionality in the pattern. Also because of the bias cutting these pattern pieces use a little more fabric than they would if they were cut on the grain. Instead I made the top using the lining panels for the yoke which still gave me a crossover effect at the bust but produced a slightly simpler shaped top which I satisfyingly managed to squeeze out of a meter of wide linen. The other factor I consider when picking a dress-cum-top pattern is whether the design lends itself to turning into a shirt or overshirt. I have zero interest in sewing formal shirts or even semi-casual shirts as it's not a style I've ever enjoyed wearing. But I do like a loose, long-sleeved linen shirt that I can pop over a dress to protect my arms and shoulders from the sun on those few days in the year when it's too hot for me to wear a cardigan. And I suspect that this style of shirt will be even more useful in the future if or when the hot flushes decide to appear on the scene. The v-neck dress pattern is designed with a centre front seam from the bottom of the v-neck to the hem and a v-neck shaped interfacing. I'm currently perfecting the fit of my next v-neck dress top hack, but once I've nailed that I plan to turn it into a shirt. This will involve adding a seam allowance to the centre of the front panels and creating a new neckline interfacing that runs right down to the hem. Doing so, I should be able to create an edge to edge shirt. As I would wear this pattern hack as an overshirt, I won't bother adding a button placket. If I do want to be able to do the shirt up in future iterations, I will either stitch a row of hook and eyes into the edge-to-edge front, or possibly even make of based button loops, either of which I would catch between the front panel and the facing. The front seam top doesn't have a center seam, just a short slash from the center neck to just above the bust that folds back to form the neck shaping. I've therefore been drawing up pattern pieces for a shirt version. I'm extending the existing cut line to the hem and adding a seam allowance to create separate front panels. And I will also elongate the facing panels and add seam allowance there too. Once again, any shirt will be edge to edge, so I'm not fussing around with a proper button placket. The trickier bit on this modification, though, is figuring out the sequence and method I would use for attaching the collar and the collar facing. I haven't got my head around how that might work yet, but I suspect it will become clear once I start to pin pieces together. So as I said I may only be working with three patterns but there are plenty of new techniques and tweaks to keep my brain engaged and stretch my sewing skills. I've already touched on some of the advantages of working with a small repertoire of the same patterns again and again. Time efficiency is a big one as once I've dealt with modifying critical fitting areas I can create multiple versions of the garment from the same basis. Fabric efficiency for the same reason. Longevity as I'm working off patterns, shapes that can be tweaked to allow for a changing body. Another significant benefit of limiting myself to just a few patterns is cost. Patterns are not cheap, especially independently produced patterns. I'm not saying such patterns aren't value for money and the small businesses that design and produce them shouldn't receive a viable income from them. Rather, by making the same few patterns again and again, and even envisioning them in ways not originally foreseen by the designer, I am extracting a maximum value out of each pattern. Making and wearing the same basic pattern several times does not only mean I can iron out fitting tweaks with every iteration. It also means I can figure out how I use a garment in practice so that I can base future iterations of it on concrete experience. Just as I never make a towel in a costly or precious fabric, I do not make a pattern in an expensive, rare or weightier fabric until I've lived in a garment for a while. For example, I love incorporating garments in woolen fabric into my wardrobe as they wear well, need less washing than other fibres and help cut our heating bill. And I'm glad to see that there are slowly more sources of locally woven wool available in the UK. But as a woolen fabric feels like an even more significant investment than linen or cotton, I like to have road tested a garment for several months first, which working off the same handful of patterns definitely allows me to do. Just as with knitting, there may not be a lot of novelty in terms of the number of patterns I'm buying and making, but the novelty lies in finding ways to stretch a pattern, so it serves various needs and produces a range of garments from the same starting point. I would love to hear how you balance your creative urge for newness with practical considerations like limited funds, time or a strong awareness of what shapes, style and motifs you enjoy wearing. Whether you find novelty in a limited palette and if so, how? For example, I've really enjoyed hearing how Sarah Hunt of the Fibre Trek podcast enjoys adding frivolity and novelty to the same handful of patterns using embroidery and hand stitching and I'll actually link to a recent video she made in which she is developing a style based on a relatively small number of patterns and hand stitching as embellishment. Knitting and sewing are practical creative pursuits where I'm actively trying to balance my inquisitive desire to stretch myself with a desire to manage limited resources. One of my other creative activities however has a degree of novelty hardwired into it and that's gardening. Gardening is a slow activity that is an amazing teacher. Not only does it allow for a very different learning style as well as overall garden looks, It involves a range of activities that allow us to learn at a range of paces, to consolidate skills and knowledge through repetition, to explore and expand our repertoire and to make tweaks. Although it encourages a base of steady development in our garden and ourselves, it also actively offers plenty of windows where our urge for novelty, frivolity and fun can be satisfied. I'm not talking about big, expensive changes like ripping up a whole garden and starting again, although of course that's possible too, and sometimes even necessary. Rather, the range of plants available, their natural life cycles and the robustness of certain plants all mean there is scope for us to change our mind or to try something new in a relatively low impact way. Mr M and I have lived in our house for 10 years now and in that time I've taken the garden from a bare patio and unloved back bed to something that's starting to resemble a garden. Over the years I've extended the raised beds and added pots, tried different vegetables, added bulbs, removed non-performing plants and so on. Each year I think I must have pushed the space's growing capacity to the limit and then each year I am amazed at how many more possibilities our tiny city garden offers and how much scope there is for different crops, new approaches and new configurations. One of the easiest, cheapest and least impactful ways to enjoy novelty is through growing annuals. These are plants that live their whole life in one season. They are sown, come to maturity, set seed and die in one year. They can be edible or decorative so tomatoes potatoes beans salad leaves are annuals as are things like cosmos nigella calendula i grow pretty much all of our annuals from seed as it is by far the cheapest way even if i grow the same basic crops year on year i can bring the changes by opting for a different variety if one type of tomato or bean doesn't perform well i may try a different variety one more suited to the short season, or growing in pots, or one that has a more intense flavour. Similarly, if I'm fancy mixing up the colour scheme one year, or just want to add a little zing, I can opt for annual flowers in a different shade from the year before. I don't need to rip up the whole look of the garden, but by adding a few differently coloured or differently tasting annuals, I can change the overall impact. In recent years, as my hands-on gardening time has waxed and waned due to pain levels, I have invested in a few perennials for the garden. These plants, unlike annuals, take a few seasons to establish themselves and then, with a little care each season, get better and more abundant with each year. Perennials can be anything from fruit trees and fruit bushes through herbs like lavender, sage, rosemary, to plants like phrobena bonariensis, flowering salvias, ferns, roses, echinacea, clematis and so on. Even within this large range of longer living plants, nature provides windows for novelty. Apple trees, rhubarb plants, lavender bushes take a while to establish themselves, but every year they will get better, bulk up, bear more fruit or flowers. Other perennial plants will be short-lived perennials, meaning they will be good for three or five years, but after that they start to wane. Things like strawberries or rudbeckia, which are large daisy-like flowers in fiery yellows and oranges, which add fabulous late summer and autumn colour to the garden. These short-lived perennials are a fabulous example of how nature balances long-lived steadiness with medium-term fun and frivolity that live splendidly, fade and are then replaced, either with the same plant propagated from the original seed or cutting, or swapped out for something new altogether. Like most people, I am gardening on a limited budget, so over the last few years I've only been able to add one or two perennials per year. This slow rate of additions is not a bad thing because over time I'm working out what I like, what my garden likes, what the wildlife likes, what works well in certain spots but not in others. At this time of year when the days are fading and much of my garden work is focused on preparing for next year I also find myself taking stock what to repeat next year, how to rotate crops in light of space and light constraints, which annuals to grow next season, but also which perennials to leave in their place, which I need to dig up and move, and which ones I need to dig out altogether. In many of my creative pursuits, I feel a strong sense of responsibility about resources that go into my making, and it can even cause some anxiety about waste. But this feeling is definitely less pronounced when it comes to gardening. It's partly because I have low-impact strategies for plants I decide to discontinue. I can either pot them up and pass them on in the local plant swap, or if the plant has truly failed, it can go on the compost heap and contribute to the enrichment of my soil. I think the other reason why I'm less anxious about waste in the garden lies in the intrinsic character of nature and plants, with their rhythms and cycles that allow for development and even offer us windows in which we can make creative decisions even if this means editing things out. These cycles mean that if I'm digging up a plant and letting it go, the decision is not a rash one. There is no editing on a whim. Rather, from planting out a shrub or flower and nurturing it for a season, I go on a journey with it, and any decision to let it go is made in function of all the investment and connection I've experienced in that time. And maybe that is an insight that I can take back to my other creative practices too. The cycles of materials, ingredients and our changing circumstances mean there will be scope for editing out and allowing novelty in. But if we first spend time connecting with the materials and product for several seasons, this journey will inform us when such deletions make sense and when all we might need to do is refresh our experience of the item by putting it together in another combination or rethinking the context in which we use it. I wanted to share an inspiring gem in this podcast, which is a little bit of an unusual one for me. I mostly use this slot to highlight interesting podcasts and inspiring creatives, but this time I'm sharing details of a product. One of the companies I use to source fabric for my dressmaking efforts is Fabworks in Yorkshire. I use this company as it sources a lot of the fabric from industry waste, aka deadstock or overstock. This is an excellent way of diverting perfectly good fabric from landfill but also means I get access to quality fabric at more manageable prices. This year however Fabworks has also added a small collection of fabric that it has commissioned. Although this range involves using virgin resources it's the kind of economic activity that ticks a lot of boxes for me. Fabworks has brought out a limited collection of woolen tweeds called Heart of Huddersfield. This collection includes 5 ranges and 6 types of weaves in beautiful colours from heathered sages and purples and pinks to deep ochres and gem-like teals and berries. They are available from the mill shop or online at £12.5 per half metre and in half metre increments. When designing and developing this 100% wooden cloth, the focus was on keeping the production as local as possible with everything from spinning to weaving and finishing happening within a five mile radius of the Yorkshire town of Huddersfield. Yorkshire was an important area in the history of British cloth production and Fabwork's focus on producing a local cloth allows it to invest in keeping skills and expertise alive in this area. In this time of heightened nationalism I'm always wary of praising local production, as this can so easily be co-opted by people with populist agendas. But as someone who looks at all the range of issues involved in sustainability, I'm a strong advocate of investing in thriving local economic activity. Not for jingoistic reasons, but rather because an economy that is highly centralised around a few hot spots, which sucks in commuters and supply chains and leaves whole areas of a country undernurtured, is not good for the environment, society or well-being, or even for the long-term resilience of an economy. Just as natural ecosystems are at their most resilient when they are highly diverse with lots of interconnected, mutually supportive cycles, so too are societies and economies. I contacted Fabworks as I was eager to know where it sources the wool for its collection from, and this is the only thing that is not local. The collection is currently made from wool sourced from New Zealand, and the company was very pragmatic about the rationale. Developing its own line of wool was an experiment, and if it had used British-reared wool, the retail price of the cloth would be twice or three times as much as it is, and the company had to make decisions about what they thought would be viable commercially. These economics don't surprise me. I've scrimped and saved from my budget to be able to support companies who have experimented with commissioning cloth from British wool, like Cambrian Wool and Daughter of a Shepherd, and their pricing is definitely in that region. There's no way around it. Fabric that is locally grown and produced is a costly investment. I'm not saying it's not worth it, rather that such volume of production combined with such level of transparency and traceability comes with a price tag. Does the New Zealand wool detract from the merits of FabWorks' heart of Huddersfield line? I think not. In my personal choices, and support of sustainably minded initiatives. I aim for ambitious, but I don't advocate absolutes. We all start from where we are, and make the most considered and informed choices in light of our circumstances, and in the process champion those who are doing their bit in their way based on their circumstances. If we wait for the perfect, nothing will change. Also, we all have different budgets, sometimes budgets that fluctuate from year to year or month to month. And having a range of options is important. There are times when I can't afford to buy woolen fabric. There are other times when the only way I can afford it is by sourcing dead stock at accessible prices. Occasionally with careful saving and forgoing other things I might be able to treat myself to a meter of locally grown and milled tweed and at other times something like the Heart of Huddersfield line might be viable. Each of these resource usage approaches to business has a role to play in an economy that is more earth and people kind. In my mind, it makes perfect sense to support a business that produces a long-life product that even in the 21st century has a practical use in a Chilean country and in the process is supporting local skills, experience and supply chains. So if you're planning to sew a winter skirt or maybe a new coat or even make some cushion covers or upholster a chair this year and you can stretch your funds to be able to invest in Heart of Huddersfield tweed, I would encourage you to look into this beautiful range of cloth. And if you do buy some, please do drop the company a line to let them know you welcome their approach. Similarly, if you are in a position to support locally grown and produced woolen fabric, by all means do so and let the producers know that you would also support such products in the future. The world of online shopping can be extremely impersonal and can definitely encourage consumption on autopilot, but it can also give us a direct line to talk to businesses so we can have the kind of conversations that in years gone by we might have had face to face. We can use these lines of communications not just to let companies know that we like a product but that we appreciate certain aspects of their business or to make suggestions like how our experience of material as hand knitters is informing our choice of fabrics or sewers and so on. I know this is turning into rather a long episode but I just wanted to finish this podcast with some news about a new strand to the Curiosity Cabinet. As I mentioned earlier I've been thinking about how the podcast fits into my wider creative practice and those who follow me on Instagram may know where this is leading. Each episode takes a lot of time to produce, not just in terms of recording and editing, but more so in terms of researching and preparing a podcast that is relatively cohesive and structured and fact-checking any substantive information I share, a crazy practice I know. Although I thoroughly enjoy the process, as with anything that involves research, a lot of the ideas, strains of thoughts and musings get left on the editing floor. A lot don't even make it to the first version of the recording, not because they aren't relevant or interesting, but rather as I want to avoid overburdening each episode, heading down too many tangents and creating too much of a tangled web for an audio podcast. In recent months, I've therefore been mulling over how I might use my podcasting energy and time efficiently in a way that supports my creative life. Some friends have asked whether I would consider using Patreon, but I feel strongly that I want the podcast to be freely accessible. Also, I'm wary to commit to anything like Patreon, not just in light of the energy ebbs and flows that go with fibromyalgia, but also because my general approach to publishing, whether it's a podcast, a blog post or a post on Instagram, is that I only publish if I have something to say. In light of all the researched and half-developed strains of thought that the podcast process generates, and my own frustration at only being able to scratch the surface of the making-related topics I explore, I have decided to work with my first love, writing, and develop some of this material into the occasional self-published collection of essays that complement a podcast. Not each podcast episode will have an accompanying publication, only where I feel the topics and body of musings merit it. Of course, once I decided on this general course of action, a whole suite of other decisions cropped up. What to call this additional strand of the Mrs N's curiosity cabinet, how to produce it efficiently, whether to print it or go with an e-format, how much to charge and so on. The easiest decision was what to call this addition to the Curiosity Cabinet. The contemporary term for this kind of publication is a zine, but I have decided to call it a pamphlet. Partly because the focus is very much a text-based publication, although it will contain some photos, but mostly because I want to invoke a spirit of possibility, change and discussion. On a practical level, I've decided to make the publication of a collection of 4 to 6 long form essays available in a printed format this is not a decision i have taken lightly i know that we live in an increasingly digital age and that paper production has an environmental impact however as somebody who happily crunches numbers for life cycle analysis reasons i'm aware that digital content also has a serious carbon footprint Whilst I have some control over the kind of paper I will use for a publication, I have little to no control over where my digital content is hosted and how the host sources their electricity. I've therefore decided to opt for a printed format. That's not to say that it will not be possible to buy the pamphlet in electronic form if that's really your preferred format. However, if you do want to read the publication digitally, I will not be making it available in the Ravelry Etsy style of paying the cover price and getting an automatic link to download. In the first place, this decision is due to the environmental impacts of external hosting services, but a further complication actually galvanised this decision, and that is UK tax law. Due to the tax rules that apply in the UK and my need to manage my time and energy carefully, I want to avoid triggering the VAT rules that apply to providing digital services as they create a lot of administrative work. Put simply, if I sell a hard copy of a book or a magazine like Product by Post, it attracts 0% of VAT. For people outside Europe, VAT is value-added tax and it's sort sort of similar to sales tax. If, however, I sell the same item in a digital format whereby the customer receives an automated download link, I trigger the digital services category. This means I need to charge VAT, which will vary from country to country in the European Union, register to pay that VAT, and then go through a three-monthly administrative circus to manage this. If, however, I sell a digital copy by sending a potential customer an invoice, waiting to receive payment, and then sending that person an email with a PDF attached. In that case, I fall into the category of selling a zero-rated t- uh, product rather than a digital service. In light of my energy levels and the likely sums involved, I am going to adopt this more hands-on approach if anybody wants to read the pamphlet but prefers a digital copy. And just to reassure you, this approach is not a form of tax dodging. It follows the guidance listed on the UK Tax Authority's website. As to price, I'm thinking it will be somewhere in the range of the £6, but the final price will depend on printing companies' quotes. Anyway, I will keep you updated on when I send the final proof of the first pamphlet to print. And if you enjoy the podcast and would like to support me by buying a standalone pamphlet that accompanies the podcast, I would, of course, be very grateful. On that note, I'm going to sign off for this episode. As always, I love reading your thoughts, reactions and ponderings that these episodes elicit. So please do not hesitate to contact me. And until the next time, I hope you enjoy many happy hours of making whatever your craft may be.